This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Leslie Chang, and today we have a special Veterans Day episode. It's a conversation between Roy Scranton and our producer, Mike Osborne. In 2013, Roy wrote an article in the New York Times called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. He recently finished a book by the same title that expands on this original essay. So some backstory on Roy. He's a veteran of the Iraq War, and right now he's finishing a PhD in English at Princeton. He grew up in a blue-collar family in Salem, Oregon, and for a lot of his youth, he was a liberal activist and a bit of a nomad. After September 11th, though, Roy decided to enlist in the Army. He served for four years, and when he came back from Iraq, he finished college and went on to Princeton for his Ph.D. So here's Mike's conversation with Roy Scranton. Mike started out by asking Roy about his teenage years and his life growing up in Salem, and we'll jump in where Mike asks Roy this question. Were you a nerd? Uh, I was a nerd. I was totally a nerd. I'd actually my my first year in high school, I took mostly computer classes and thought and decided I was going to be a programmer. You know, this was like the early, very early nineties. Mm-hmm. If I'd done that, I sometimes think back. You know, I, I'd probably be much wealthier than I am today. When I ask the question, are you a nerd, right? Um, <laughs> like, it's kind of a complicated question because there's people who feel like outcasts, intellectuals can feel, uh, or, or not even intellectuals, but, you know, people who read or whatever yeah, um, can, yeah. can totally feel like outsiders. And, and I guess the question is, like, was there a group of you or were you yeah. kind of a loner? In in uh, high school, certainly, and junior high, you know, there I was, you know, one among several nerds you know and, and it's like but they were they were <laughs> it's funny you know i'm finishing a phd now at princeton and i'm i move now in higher education institutions and good ones and if there's i i don't know that there's you know there's certainly not in college there's not the same stigma on nerds yeah, or, or being curious generally yeah yeah as there was you know in my medium-sized town high school in Salem, Oregon, you know, there was that social stigma, I guess, and there's probably 
that all over the place. That I think that's right. You get to college and it, it's okay to be smart and it's okay to be curious and even good and healthy right. and like, but, but your path to Princeton was was not a linear one and was not one no. that follows a traditional script. What I really want to build up to is your decision to to join the army. I mean, right. some of that must have been a search for identity that often begins in adolescence and and, and sounds like it began you know, as an outcast to some extent. But, you know, how, how did you get there? Like, what happened after high school? Right. Well, so there's, there's a lot there. You know, indeed, there was a kind of search for identity in high school, even. There was, I was, I, you know, I'm a first-generation college student. Uh, I went to college after high school. And I went to the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. And, and I dropped out within a year for a variety of reasons. I dropped out because my student loans were outrageous and my parents were having a hard time, you know, paying tuition and shouldering the debt that was coming from me attending this uh, private school. I dropped out because I was frustrated and didn't didn't find in that university the sort of intellectual playground that that I that I had been looking for. Yeah. I dropped out and I planned to be a writer. That was my idea. I was going to drop out of college and become a writer. And then you wound up in Utah? Yeah. So uh, after dropping out of college, I spent several years working just in various jobs, food service. I worked with a traveling hot dog stand (laughs) (laughs) based out of Fergus Falls, Minnesota. And we would go to powwows and rodeos and county fairs. Wow. I worked as a a grassroots organizer, a door-to-door fundraiser for the state perks. We did fundraising for the Sierra Club and wound up eventually, you know, tra- wandered all over uh, the Western United States and wound up in, in Utah, Moab, working at a bookstore as a barista and a breakfast cook at a cafe there. And I was there until shortly after September 11th. I thought I was going to just stay there, just live in the desert, write poetry and live out my life there. But after September 11th happened, sort of a bunch of different things came together. I had a sort of three things happened one after another. One was September 11th. One was I'd had a bicycle accident. I was just riding my bike to work and fell. It had a little accident, fell on my face, cut my lip and knocked out a tooth. And I didn't have a dental plan. Obviously, I'm just working in a coffee shop and whatever. So I had to, you know, pay to have my face fixed as much as I could afford mm-hmm. just out of my pocket, which brought home a certain economic reality about spending the rest of my days working in a coffee shop in, in Moab, Utah. Um, and then also an older friend of mine there in Moab, a guy named Bruce, had a heart attack going into a movie theater and, and died. And it, these three things together, you know, which are on they're on totally different scales, obviously, these events. But they focused things for me, and they bumped me out of that trajectory. I needed to get back into life. I needed to get, you know, get my life together. I wanted to, you know, figure out a way to go back to school. Or, you know, get some, get a, a job that had, you know, health insurance, and also part of the focusing power of of September 11th, I wanted to be closer to my family and some friends. 
So I moved back from Moab. I moved back to, to Oregon, and nothing worked out there <laughs> either. Like, I couldn't find a job. My, my teeth were still messed up because I couldn't afford to, the cosmetic dental surgery to get them fixed. And I wound up living at my mom's house, 25 years old, sort of really feeling myself at a dead end. Uh, I hadn't really gone anywhere. I hadn't had you know, worldly success as a writer. And sort of, like I said, I just found myself at a dead end. So then I, I went down to the recruiter. And uh, all these things started to coalesce. But I also wanted to know what it looked like, what, what American empire looked like, where it happened out on the front lines, out at the edge, out where we, where we were exporting it. I wanted to see it myself and to actually have that sort of firsthand experience of, of what it meant. So was it a confident decision or a desperate decision? You know, I mean, we, we improvise, man. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, totally, totally. I, th- I think that's right. I think yeah. we make decisions and we also look back and, and, we, and yeah. we, there's, there's all kinds of revisionist history. But, but, I mean, I guess the other thing I wonder about, you know, g- given that you describe yourself as a nerd, given that you wandered around yeah. for a while, given that, you know, you had strongly held political views that don't seem to align necessarily with the administration in power. I mean, the, the question of, you know, why do this, I, I think, looms large a little bit. But I think, yeah. I think, like you said, there's all kinds of reasons. And I, yeah. the other thing that, like, is burning in my mind is, did you regret it? You know, you got what you asked for, right? You right. got valid experience, and you got to the front lines. And, and now you have experience that I think defines who you are in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, my four years in the Army, and especially the 14 months I spent in Iraq, are it's one of the most intense periods in my life. And it was, it was very complex. You know, there weren't ever moments where I wished I hadn't. There were moments where I couldn't wait for it to end, where I, where I wished that it would be over. But I had, you know, once I signed that contract, once I said, you know, once I, I made my oath and said I would do my service, I was in it for the four-year term. There were times when it was incredibly difficult, and I was very unhappy about that fact. But, you know, one of the great lessons of, of Nietzsche is the idea of eternal recurrence. And it's a sort of, it's, a, it's like a thought experiment, right? And the idea is, imagine that your life, that, it, that you were going to live it again, over and over, in exactly the same way. And Nietzsche's challenge is whether or not you can say, yes, I'll do that. I'll live exactly the same life over and over again. And for Nietzsche, being the sort of affirming, life-affirming philosopher he is, if you can't say yes, then then you're failing yourself, and and you don't deserve any of it. Right, for, right, right. For Nietzsche, and the challenge is to affirm yes over and over again for infinity. And so that's a long way of saying that I try not to regret things. I, I guess one of the things that, and and this, I think we're finally at the point where I'm really wanting to talk about the book, one of the things I love about the book is how you talk about fear in particular. Um, yeah. and, and some of your passages about, about, about how fear defines us, how fear enters our lives. I mean, to me, it seems that that is the value of a soldier's experience is that, you know, you're, you're forced to confront that. And it gives you a, a willingness and an ability to talk about 
death in a way that I think a lot of us have a hard time confronting. And so all of this seems actually really important to me in terms of how you frame the Anthropocene. So uh, this is a little bit of a funny question, but when did you first hear about the Anthropocene? How did you glob <laughs> onto this term? Right. So it was, I think, I started hearing this word, Anthropocene, sort of floating around. And I was curious about it. My, it, it didn't have anything to do with my specific area of study, which is about World War II in American literature and the problem of the hero as it is addressed in American World War II literature and how the, prob the, sh the, the focus on the problem shifts uh, into the 60s and 70s. So that's a big thing. And, but I, I say that because I wasn't deep into global warming. I wasn't deep into environmental humanities or you know, what's sometimes still called eco-criticism yeah. uh, in literary studies. I wasn't really following all of that, but I had been hearing this word Anthropocene, and I was sort of vaguely thinking about global warming, climate change, because it's just in the background of our lives these days, right? You get into it when you follow up what's happening. You read the IPCC reports. You read the World Bank reports. You know, these are not these are not radical institutions. These are not far left environmentalists. These are these are central, middle of the road institutions, deeply invested in global capitalism and global systems. And they're telling us we're fucked. They're telling us, you know, if we keep doing what we're doing, like it's done. And I it kind of blew my mind. I had this moment where I was like, oh wow, this is really like this is on. This is for real. And it's. It's, it's happening right not. now. It's right in front of me, and yeah. and, and this is, these are the stakes. It's a hell of yeah. a moment to process. And, and so, I mean, something about the framing of humans as a geologic force encapsulated that for you. It wasn't, it wasn't quite that. What it was was the Anthropocene as, as a concept was intellectually appealing. The idea of the Anthropocene itself didn't frame the situation dramatically for me. What it did was it suggested or it opened up a way of thinking about the situation as as a period as not just a process that's happening such as global warming or climate change which feels like something that we can have control over but as a period of time the anthropocene that is something that is happening to us or that we or better that we live in and that's that's where its power especially seemed reside in framing it is that it frames the, the problem as something we are inside of the thrust of the book i mean t tell t tell me about it why did you want to write a book called learning to die in the anthropocene actually we, we can start with the new york times article but you know right. what was the, what was the motivation well so i had that moment of um not panic but um crisis really confronting the dire predictions from very conventional sort of uh, institutional bodies. And I thought, I need to write about it for myself to process it. Also, you know, to work through, you know, I felt it as a personal crisis as well. Like, you know, I'd gone, <laughs> I'd, I'd gone into the, I'd spent four years in the army. I helped, you know, occupy Iraq and then worked my way through college, hoping to, you know, get some sort of cushy middle-class life where I could teach poetry, right, with healthcare and, and everything like that. And, 
you know, I may get a few good years of that still. But global warming, what we face, threatens sort of everything. And, you know, I wanted to work out for myself not just how to process that crisis, but also what do I do about it? You know, the, that's the question everyone asks. You know, whenever I hear a scientist or somebody talk about the situation, one of the inevitable questions, what can we do? What can we do? And I don't know that there's an easy answer to that question. I'm not sure there's any answer to it. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think why I like the book is it starts with we're f***ed. It doesn't conclude yeah. with that, right? right. And, 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 yeah. and then goes from there and then makes an impassioned argument for, you know, the humanities, essentially. Right. I mean, to me, that's what yeah. there, there's such a like unpacking of what the Anthropocene actually is. I want to get back to sort of the, the initial New York Times article. That seemed to really make the rounds to me. I mean, what was it about that article that you think you know, resonated with people? I think, yeah, I've tried to figure out. I certainly didn't expect it to, and it was, it was incredibly unsettling <laughs> and, and exciting. Unsettling how? I mean, just because you didn't expect the, the success of it? Or? Well, I, you, know, I don't, you know, I don't feel like I have a, a happy message for people. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and to find so many, so many people being like, yeah, it's like... <laughs> It's somewhat alarming. It's, well, but uh, no, I mean, I think that that was actually something that came out in your conversation with Naomi Klein, too. It's like, why are we getting, why are we brushing aside fear here? That's that's a really valid point. We talk a little too much about the empowerment of humanity without actually scaring people about the, the, the stakes, the consequences yeah. of what we face. Right. And I think that's that, that, that may be one reason. It, yes, it's not a happy message, but it felt true. Yeah, that's the thing is I think it felt true to a lot of people and it felt true in a way that I don't think it had been articulated very often. The idea the idea that we're fucked. I don't say that particularly in that in that piece, but it's implied that that it's happening and that, you know, there's not a it's not something like that we can swerve our way out of. And that the stakes aren't just a warmer planet, but the stakes are are war and suffering. And I think something else people really responded to was the way that I was able to connect my personal experience confronting the idea of my own mortality in Iraq to this larger situation where we're, we're looking at the end of civilization as we know it. <laughs> Even if like, things work out really well and we are able somehow magically to shift from a fossil fuel-based civilization to something else, it's still going to be the end of civilization as we know it. Certainly, one thing that resonated with me was exactly what you said. I mean, your experience of of, of confronting your own mortality uh, yeah. in, in Iraq. I think that there's there's really no there's no substitute for that kind of experience. Those of us who haven't been in combat or haven't been in war zones can kind of only know what that's like so much, and that that's always going to be. A, a kind of communication challenge for people like you who've had that experience. But somehow linking that with climate change and with the death of civilization, I, I, I think you're right. I think there was a kind of a convergence of things that, that a lot of us have a hard time reconciling. You know, there's, there's a mystique, there's an aura around the experience of war that is definitely, if not invoked, that's at least present in my piece, it's a, it's a big part of our culture and how we talk about and think about war. And I'm actually deeply critical of it in a lot of my work. And I'm ambivalent about using it to talk about climate change. 
you know, the experience of war is in American culture and in, in sort of contemporary Western culture since the roughly since the Napoleonic Wars, and it's it's something that's that's developed and developed uh, has created this aura or created this uh, discourse around the experience of war that describes the experience of war as this intense metaphysical confrontation with truth and describes it as an experience that exactly how how you described it as something that people who were not there could never understand there's this deep mythology right built up around the experience of war you know asking whether it's true or not is sort of the wrong question there are obviously as with any experience there are certain things that you can that you learn about it by doing it that would be phenomenally difficult to learn in any other way. I mean, are you critical of the way it's it's used? Is it about how systems sort of leverage the mythology to compel people uh, into in, in having certain, I don't know, complicit views or something like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm critical of, I'm critical of the way it gets used. I'm critical of the way that it gives a moral authority to people who have been to war. Just going to war doesn't necessarily give you any special kind of insight. But this discourse or this mythology says that it does. It says everybody who goes to war learns something about death, learns something about being human that you can't, that everyone who hasn't gone to war can't really ever know. You know, and I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of that, even, even as, you know, I find myself in the role of, you know, occupying that position of moral authority at times. Right, um, <laughs> right. Irony's yeah. not lost on you. Yeah. Right. No, it's not. And and I'm also critical of the way that it separates out war from the rest of our experience. Oh. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it compartmentalizes the experience or something. Exactly, because in fact the experiences I had in Iraq are not very different from experiences that a paramedic or an EMT or a police officer might have, or even someone growing up in a really neighborhood in Baltimore or in Detroit, New York, or wherever. People, you don't have to go to war to know what it's like to to face the prospect of your own mortality. Right. I mean, and I think that that like sort of bringing it back to the the problem or one of the challenges with climate change, I mean, I've, I've certainly thought a lot about why it's so kind of impossible by definition to experience climate, right? It's the context, but it like it, it unfolds over decades. And, right. and the urgency of that and the way it can threaten civilization, you know, is an interesting thing to contrast with day-to-day experiences that threaten your mortality. It's just our, our, our brains aren't, aren't quite wired for right. it. So, so I mean, right. certainly, you know, having your experience is, is, an, is an asset for thinking about these things. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I definitely think it's, it's an asset. And, and it's also, it's an asset because most of, most of the people who I think are most worried about climate change in the United States don't have a lot of experience in difficult, dangerous areas. That's right. right? Yeah. We've, we've been very protected in the United States, a lot of people, a lot of white people, a lot of middle-class people. Yeah, I was going to say a lot um, of wealthy people, yeah. A lot of wealthy people, very protected from just sort of basic, you know, what for the most of human history is just sort of like basic normal suffering and danger. Right. Yeah, and so, you know, going to Iraq was like I got a little taste of <laughs> the kind of 
the kind of world that humanity has lived in for much of its existence and the kind of world that I think we're headed for. And so, you know, you asked me why did I, why would I want to write a book called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene? Because learning to accept, learning to come to terms with the intensity of, of the situation are both processes that are continually, like they're ongoing for me. Like, it's not like I wrote that essay for the New York Times and I was done and I'm like, all right, great, I'm, I'm happy now. It's still happening and I still have to keep coming back to it because I live in late stage global fossil fuel capitalism. I still live here and it's still happening and I still need to keep coming to terms with it and living with it and trying to live with it in a way that, where I don't feel like a hypocrite, living, in a way, living with it in a way where I'm not in despair or panic. And all of that uh, is about learning to die. Learning to die. Learning to accept my own mortality. Learning to accept the mortality of this world and everything in it. And also learning to understand that it's not just that these things end, but that they end and they pass and then something else happens. Something else comes afterward. And if, if I want to comport myself as an ethical human being, then I have an obligation to whatever human beings are in that something else that comes after. Part of learning to die, then, for me, is about learning that I'm a, I'm a link in a chain. You know, whatever happens, whatever other civilization comes up, and possibly the human species might go extinct. Who knows? But I have to think and act with some kind of ethical sense of the dead that have come before and the future generations for whom I will be the dead, for whom we will be the dead. Huh. Uh, Roy Scranton, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for making the time. Congratulations on the book, and uh, I hope we can talk again in the future. Yeah, thank you so much. The, the pleasure has been mine. Royce Granton is in the Bay Area this weekend, so if you're here, you can listen to him speak in San Francisco this Friday, November 13th. The event is called Love and Death in the Anthropocene, and it's taking place at City Lights Bookstore at 7 p.m. We'll post the details again on the Gen Anthro Facebook page and our website for easy reference. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, and me, Leslie Chang. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. We also want to thank Tom Hayden. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. You can also find Mike Osborne on Twitter. He's kind of a dweeb with social media, but you should totally follow him. Maybe then he'll feel obliged to tweet some more entertaining things. He's at OsborneMC on Twitter. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Might have some edits. <laughs> can I keep it? If you if you want me to take it out, I can take it out.